This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Good evening, everyone. I'm uh, Morris McInnes, and I'm uh, here to welcome you all and to introduce our uh, keynote speaker. This is a celebration of the Chinese New Year, the year of the ox, the year 4707 in the Chinese calendar. Xing Yan Kuai Lua. Did I say that right? <laughs> okay. What is it? It's Happy New Year in Mandarin. Well, a, a close approximation at least, okay. And the other thing I was gonna say is, Gong Fei Hat Choi. Okay, that's Cantonese for health and prosperity in the coming year. At least that's what I was told. Anyhow, this is the year of the ox in the Chinese zodiac, the Chinese calendar. And the ox symbolizes prosperity and progress through strength, fortitude, persistence, and hard work. It's a quiet and reflective purpose in life. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, the wise old ox knows you can't plow a field by turning it over in your mind. <laughs> you have to get out and act. Now for our Chinese audience, I have to remind us that in American mythology, we have a very prominent ox, Paul Bunyan's famous blue ox called Babe, and together they flattened the meadows, straightened out the rivers, and reshaped the mountains in the United States, or it wasn't the United States in those days. And there is no doubt, there is work aplenty ahead of us in 4707 or 2009. These are, in some ways, daunting times. And we in the United States and China, we have so much reconstruction to do of our economies and on the international scene. We face huge challenges to correct economic imbalance. In our side in the United States, spending way more than we make or save and on the Chinese side, correcting the imbalance, the enormous imbalance between exports and imports. And what I hope is that we will do this as willing partners, recognizing the extraordinary strength of relationship between our two countries. I was a little disturbed by our Secretary of the Treasury, Tim Geithner, his comments during his confirmation, accusing China of manipulating the renminbi. That kind of uh, 
loose talk, quite candidly, is not helpful in the current scene. There are those who view China's expansion as somehow threatening, as if indeed it was not that we are, you know, nations do not compete, nations cooperate to mutual advantage. Those who harbor economic protectionism, we really cannot afford that in this current climate that we are facing. We have to work together, and hopefully as leaders of the world, China and the United States will indeed, during the year of the ox, work diligently to turn over that field, not just in the mind, but to turn it over to bring a fruitful Harvard harvest. A fruitful har Harvard? Har Harvard? What's on? A fruitful harvest to fruition as we go through this challenging year. We have to work together in harmony like wise old oxen. And we have one here to address us today who has done just that. She's not old or oxen-like. She is indeed a charming lady. And she really brings this cultural integration and understanding has brought that through her life uh, to her career. Our speaker today is Jill Chang, a remarkable person, born in Chongqing in China, where Suffolk has a presence uh, in the shape of the uh, Stillwell Museum, by the way, just by the passing. She moved quite early on to Tokyo with her parents at a young age, her father was a diplomat in the Chinese embassy in Tokyo, attended the American school in Tokyo, and then came to study at Radcliffe College in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She uh, was very much involved in integrating Radcliffe College with Harvard College, which I'm sure was <laughs> quite a ticklish diplomatic operation, knowing those people at Harvard. Uh, and uh, she began working for Robert Bentley, a Cambridge publisher, and she became executive VP of that company. And then eventually she formed this, uh, this uh, publishing company, and you have information on in your places there, to bring Asian literature to America and to scholars in the United States. She exemplifies a cross-cultural philosophy. Uh, she was vice chair of Radcliffe, by the way, and organized or negotiated that merger with Harvard. She has just many, many other volunteer positions in education at Harvard, Framingham State, in the town of Brookline, and outside education at uh, Beth, Deacon Beth Israel Deaconess, the United Way of Massachusetts, and many other uh, including uh, the Downtown Crossing Association, and certainly Suffolk and the Downtown Crossing Association have got to work together in harmony like two wise old oxen. Anyway, I now ask you to welcome, please, Jill Chang, our keynote speaker tonight. Thank you very much. Dean McInnes, for your very kind introduction. 
Can you all hear me? Okay, good. Um, well, hello everyone. <laughs> Happy New Year. I'm very honored to be here tonight at the Sawyer School of Business to celebrate with you the New Year of the Ox. I understand that uh, many of you here are global MBA students. Well, you should be very proud of yourselves because you are following in one of mankind's most time-honored traditions. Do you know what that is? Any guesses? International business. From the earliest times, we seem to have always been in search of new opportunities beyond our own borders. It is people like you, full of the spirit of curiosity and adventure, who fill our history books with the exciting tales of trade along the Silk Road, of Marco Polo's travels, of New England's China trade missions. And throughout Chinese history, many of its most prosperous periods were marked by extensive contact with the outside world. For example, the Tang Dynasty in the 7th century was one of China's most glorious periods. In its capital was Chang'an, which is today's Xi'an. Um, curious, um, how many of you have visited Xi'an? Okay, uh, that's where the famous Qin Dynasty terracotta warriors are. Well, in its heyday, it was the largest and most populous city in the world with over one million people. It was a really cosmopolitan place with folks from all around the world. You can say it was like New York City and Washington, D.C., all rolled into one. During that time, China produced some of the highest forms of the arts, poetry, literature, paintings, and artifacts. And in the artifacts, Chinese artisans were very much influenced by the striking colors, shapes, and patterns of things the international merchants brought from Central and West Asia. That's probably when the experiment with Persian blue on ceramics began, and it, it led to the beautiful blue and white porcelain that we know today. And when you visit museums of Chinese art, you will find many porcelain wine pots having Middle Eastern shapes and gold and silverware with Arabic patterns and writing. So from the very start, trade actually involved not just the exchange of goods, but also of ideas, aesthetics, symbols, and practices. But how did our ancestors manage to conduct business without an MBA degree in international business? <laughs> well, just imagine the earliest Silk Road travelers to the West from Han Dynasty China in the second century BC. How did they communicate when they didn't speak the same language? I am always amazed at how we somehow find a way. And this actually takes me back to my year living in Germany. I arrived in Hamburg with zero knowledge of German other than the word Fräulein. I'd heard it used in the movies uh, about World War II. I enrolled in an intensive two-month German language program at the Goethe Institute, and they arranged for me to live with a German family. I was quite anxious, of course, because the German couple knew no English. 
But somehow we automatically used hand gestures, uttered a few sounds, and managed to communicate. Just the basics, of course. <laughs> it did help that there are many similarities between English and German words. But even outside the language classroom, I found that I picked up words and expressions here and there every day just to handle daily living. It is really true what they say that necessity is the mother of invention. In this case, necessity led to communication. And with my love for sweet things, the most important first words I learned were Kuchen and Nachtisch, <laughs> baked goods and dessert. <laughs> so I suspect that was how the earliest encounters must have been like. And one can just imagine how long it must have taken to transact anything in those days. But today, even when language is not the barrier, doing business in China will still often require that kind of patience. People often say that Asians have a long-term view of things. That's been mostly true, but it's changing. Why? the cultural influence of doing business with America. Still, there is a tendency to be slow in making decisions, and the reasons are probably both physical and cultural. Until you go to China, it's perhaps hard to imagine just how big China is because of its massive population. Out of necessity, its organizations and their bureaucracies are huge and unwieldy. In addition, there are Chinese beliefs and teachings that encourage this slower approach. One such saying is san si er hou xing, which translates to think three times before you act. So when we talk about doing business in China, it is really not enough to look only at the technical expertise of what you, need to what you need to conduct business. You must also understand the traditions, outlooks, values, symbols, perspectives that influence how your Chinese counterparts interpret and act. This is what we mean by the cultural aspects of doing business in China, or frankly, in any other country even domestically. After all, even within each nation, it is made up of different regions, different terrains, different local, local customs and habits. It is easier to adapt to each variation, such variations within your own country because you share many common denominators such as language and laws. In foreign countries, the challenges are greater but certainly manageable. There, too, different areas and different types of people in different circumstances will require different approaches and understanding. Your predecessors traveled everywhere, and they did it. Surely they could not have dealt with China successfully and peacefully for so long if they had not respected the sensibilities and life habits of its local people. How else would they have known what goods to sell to the different parts of China? But business is never a one-way relationship, nor a monolithic one. 
at the same time that they were learning about China and the Chinese, the Chinese merchants had to do the same thing, learn and understand the tastes, attitudes, and lifestyles of, these, of, of those outside of China and provide them with what they needed. In this mutual exchange of goods and gr- culture, each side is enriched. I'm sorry, each side enriches the other, not just materialistically, but intellectually and spiritually as well. So now it is your turn to play this important role. Remember that as you conduct business, you are also an ambassador and an educator representing your culture. How do we begin? As a start, we should certainly read some general books and watch some videos on the civilization of China, both old and new, its history, art, literature, and religion. But I really don't think that is adequate. To get a really visceral appreciation of a culture, which is so important to doing business successfully, you must learn the language as well. I truly believe that learning a language is at the core of cross-cultural understanding. And my belief is rooted in my own experience. I was born in China, grew up in Tokyo, Japan, but was educated at an American school with an international student body. I am multilingual, speaking Chinese, Japanese, and English, and I'm bisschen German. As a result, I am very comfortable socializing and working with people from all of these different places. But when I visited Seoul, Korea one year, I had the strangest experience. I actually felt somewhat helpless and foreign. when the English-speaking host was not by my side. I was really puzzled by my discomfort because, after all, Korea has a lot in common with China and Japan, and I love Korean food. Then it dawned on me that this was one of the first places I'd visited on business where I did not speak the language at all. Even before my visit to Korea, I actually had other experiences which first got me to appreciate the importance of knowing a foreign language. When I traveled in different business settings around the world, I noticed that whenever I switched from English to Japanese or Chinese or German, as the situation demanded, I always got from the listeners a reaction, first of surprise, then of approval and pleasure. Then immediately afterwards, I would be treated like one of their own, and the conversation would take on a totally different and much friendlier tone. I suspect some of you have had similar experiences. So to do business with China, in China, learn Chinese. I can already hear you protest, I don't have the time. I really do understand that because I've been there but you are still young, (laughs) young, so just work steadfastly like the ox and you can do it. It really should be manageable because it's not important that you are fluent in the language. What is important is that you are interested, trying, 
and know something. By attempting to speak their language, you are in their comfort zone and showing respect for their culture in a big way. You will find that language is quite fascinating, and especially Chinese. It can tell you a lot about the changing values of the society. If you studied Chinese before the Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping opened China to the outside world in 1978, you would have learned that the word tongzhi, or comrade, it was used to address everyone you met, regardless of gender or status. That reflected the equality in those days preached by communism. How times have changed in 30 years. In today's textbooks, you will be told that it is important to address your colleagues and business counterparts appropriately. China has now returned to the hierarchical ways of traditional times. In the West, the standard way to address a new acquaintance is to call him Mr. So-and-so. While the equivalent in Chinese is acceptable between people of equal status, Chinese now are very title conscious. So it is better to err on the side of being overly polite and address even colleagues by their formal title to show respect. For example, while in China, People often called me Cui Laoshi. Laoshi means teacher. Because I work in educational publishing, by putting me at the same level as my teacher authors, they are showing me the highest respect. But when I'm in a business setting, people usually call me Cui Zhong. Zhong is short for Zhong Cai, or CEO. In the world of fine dining, language also plays an interesting part in food selection. At birthdays, New Year, and wedding banquets, it is customary to include fish and noodle dishes. Does anyone know why? The Chinese language uses just four different tones to create tens of thousands of word combinations. So there are many that have identical sounds, but with totally different meanings. This fact lends the language to a lot of play on words, and many jokes, superstitions, poems come out of the uniqueness of the Chinese language. In this particular case, the word for fish is yu. It happens to have the same sound as the word for excess or extra. So it means to wish you lots of extra wealth, extra food, or extra whatever. As for noodles, its attraction comes from its long length. So by ordering Changsou Mian, you are wishing everyone a long, long life. For the Summer Olympics, I wonder if some of you might have noticed that the time and date of the opening ceremony was set for 8.08 p.m. on the 8th of August, 2008. Didn't this strike you as an odd time to start a program? I bet some of you read or heard the reason China did that. Would anyone want to answer this? 
Well, cultural change can come domestically from different parts of the country. And in this particular case, Beijing was influenced by Hong Kong's language-based superstition. Chinese people are very attentive to auspicious dates for special occasions, auspicious everything <laughs> for special occasions. For people in Hong Kong, the number eight is especially favored because the, <coughs> the Cantonese sound for eight is pa, which sounds somewhat similar to fa or fa choi, which means to become prosperous. Thus, all the eights to bring good luck to the Olympic event. A number you should avoid, however, is four, because the number four, si, sounds similar to the word death, si. Don't give gifts in fours. Through language studies, you will discover that until about 10 years ago, there was no equivalent for the word privacy in Chinese. Privacy, independence, individuality, were all very foreign concepts being introduced by the West. So here is an example of how the cultural aspects of doing business in China really refers to an exchange of cultures. It is through international trade that modern science and technology arrived in China, and with that also came the values and ideas of the West. But in a big country like China, tradition is slow to change. Privacy is still not widely understood. Let me give you an example. When you meet people for the first time, they usually engage in small talk before going on to discuss business. They are likely to ask you questions that are very personal in nature, such as your marriage status, your family, your siblings, and what they all do for a living. And if someone has met you a couple of times, he might ask you how much you make or how much you paid for your apartment. Don't feel offended. Feel flattered because the person is treating you like a friend. These types of questions would be regarded as inappropriate here, but they are considered perfectly acceptable in China. Language is the key to communication and really the w window to every culture. Today, I am speaking to you in English because we are in America. But if I were asked to speak before a college group in China, unless the students are English or international studies majors, I would have to speak in Chinese because the majority of Chinese today still do not know English well. With the next generation, that will change because the Chinese people have long recognized how important learning English is to their future. In preparation for our future success, therefore, those of us who are outside of China should treat learning Chinese with the same importance that the Chinese treat learning English. So please learn Chinese. And I hope by now I have persuaded you of the central role language plays in understanding another culture. And to put my long-winded comments in a nutshell, I'd like to quote Sun Tzu in The Art of War, 
if you understand your partner and yourself, your victory will not stand in doubt. Thank you. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.